Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Last month, NASA released the first images from its $10 billion James Webb Space Telescope. One of the photos shows a collection of small galaxies and stars that represent the deepest and sharpest infrared image of the universe that we've ever seen. And in another picture, it shows stars being born. The images are stunning and they're already expanding our knowledge of our universe. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today, in honor of those new revelations from the James Webb Space Telescope, we're listening back to an episode from last year. Later, we'll hear from NASA Director Greg Robinson prior to the launch of the Revolutionary Telescope. But first, this 2021 conversation with retired astronaut Leland Melvin. We won a second place award in the interview category from the Public Media Journalists Association. Leland Melvin might best be known for that viral photo of him in his bright orange spacesuit, accompanied by his two smiling dogs. But Melvin's accolades go far beyond that photo. Before joining NASA and launching into space, Leland Melvin was drafted as a wide receiver for the Detroit Lions football team. He's a material sciences engineer and best-selling author of his memoir, Chasing Space, an astronaut's story of grit, grace, and second chances. And you'll hear in this episode that Leland refers to me as Shay. It's a beloved nickname in our common hometown of Lynchburg, Virginia. Leland, welcome to Disrupted. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. You, know, you and I both grew up in Lynchburg, Virginia. And in the time that you were coming of age in the city, it was really going through this struggle of, of forced desegregation, but figuring out what kind of town it wanted to be. And your parents were both very well regarded, very well connected educators in the city. How did your time growing up in Lynchburg shape the person that you are today? You know, I, I think it shaped me from a, a number of different perspectives. And I say that because, you know, going through this, this time of segregation and, and you know, I was, I was born in the year of the Civil Rights Act in 64. And I'll never forget the time that I was a janitor in a, in a bank building downtown when I spoke to the president of the bank and he looked through me as though I was transparent. He didn't speak to me. He didn't, I mean, he looked at me, but he didn't look at me. And that told me so much at that point in my life that, you know, you know, parents had talked about things with, you know, the civil rights movement and, you know, all those things. But, but that was the first time that I really felt it and I experienced it, that someone, either they loathed me or they, I don't know if they hated me, but they just, I wasn't a human being. I wasn't a person. And, you know, as you know, my parents are both educators in this city that they've over 60 years of service they've reached so many students and told them that they can be or do anything they ingrained that in us but then when you got outside of the home you had these moments where people didn't even recognize you as a human being and that juxtaposition of what you're capable of doing and what's possible sometimes did cloud your cloud your mind 
You mentioned your parents as educators and the ways that they encourage young people. And I'm honored that I was one of those students encouraged by your parents. Your father was my sixth grade phys ed teacher at Lincoln Middle School. Oh, my goodness. Don't you love these connections? What I remember about your dad was that he was exceedingly tough. But he would say to us, I'm preparing you for the world beyond this classroom. How did those kinds of lessons, as you came of age in the city, you talked about this experience in the bank, but you also were involved in a number of activities in the city that for many people, they would have thought not possible for a young person. How did that connect for you? Yeah, I am. Again, that same, you know, motto that my dad gave you, he just drilled it in us every single day, that things would be different, that you would not necessarily get the same response or get the same reaction to to what you were trying to get. And, and I think for me, you know, they shielded me as much as they could so that I could, I could blossom. And uh, I'll never forget the time that they could not shield me, that someone took advantage of me, some abuse that happened when I was a very young child. And Shay, I knew that you know, if I told my parents, especially if I told my father, that I would be without a dad, I knew the things that happened because I watched my my colleague King get taken away from us when these two little white boys came in our yard, teased our dog, and then he did what dogs do. You know, he kind of snapped at them. He didn't bite them, but he snapped at them, and they went home and told their parents, and they came and took my dog away to the pound and killed him. And so I saw that at an earlier age. And then I knew that at this next stage, that if I said something, it's possible that they would take my dad away too. And I didn't want that, you know? So I had to, like, we always sometimes have to do, keep things pressed down and not say things. And if you say things, you may be relegated to the side. You may not get the opportunities. And so that's that balance that we have to go through sometimes. It's a tremendous sense of pressure for anyone, but particularly for a young child who is saying, something happened to me, I deserve to be heard, but to bear the weight of knowing that your words or your actions could mean a different path for someone else. One of the ways that you channel some of that, Leland, was through sports. So I mentioned at the top of the show that you played in the NFL, you were drafted by the Detroit Lions, but you really got your start as a tennis star. Talk to us about that. Why tennis? For a little brown boy in Lynchburg, Virginia, why tennis as the outlet? Shay, that's such a great question because when you think about some of the most preeminent tennis players in the universe, I'm going to say the universe because we're going off the planet here, were born, were grown in Lynchburg, Virginia, five blocks down the street from where I lived on Pierce Street. And when I think about Dr. Whirlwind Johnson, who lived on Pierce Street, who was the first black doctor to integrate the hospital that I was born in. And before we moved to Pierce Street, we lived in Dr. Johnson's apartments on Fifth Street. So this man had an impact in my life from a very early age. And I didn't even know the consequences of what watching Arthur Ashe, wanted to be like Arthur Ashe, who was trained by Dr. Johnson, also Althea Gibson. She was trained by Dr. Johnson. So these two icons of tennis that were doing things during Jim Crow, segregation, all these things were capable of rising to a very high level. So that was another example of what you can do if you if you play sometimes by different rules. 
I mean, he taught them to hit the ball two inches inside the line. So their court was actually smaller than everyone else's court because they didn't want anyone to dispute a line call and call it out when it was actually on the line and technically in. So Dr. Johnson gave them a new set of rules to make them be successful on their journey to stardom. You had exemplars in the home with your parents and your family. You had exemplars in the neighborhood and in the community that were right there in this small town. You then carry that with you to the University of Richmond as a student athlete. But Leland, I think our listeners need to know, you are a student athlete who majored in chemistry, was nominated to be a Rhodes Scholar, and you were captain of the football team. (laughs) You know, it's a lot for any one person. But what's that motivation for you going to the University of Richmond to say, I'm going to make the absolute most of this opportunity that I have to explore all of the things that drive you? Yeah, well, you know, Che, at Lynchburg City Stadium that you know very well, I dropped a touchdown pass in the end zone at my homecoming game. And the scout who was looking at me to see if I could play for the University of Richmond Spiders was walking out of the stadium when he heard the crowd screaming the second time. And he looked back and he saw me doing a dance in the end zone. I I caught the winning touchdown. So that one catch resulted in $180,000 scholarship to the University of Richmond because I didn't give up. Someone believed in me to give me a second chance. And I think that's one of the things that I've always seen. Two books, I think I can, I think I can, Little Engine That Could, and Curious George, who, when got in trouble, he always had the man in the yellow hat who gave him a second chance. And so in Lynchburg, I had those people. We had those people that let us see that anything was possible. And at Richmond, you know, my receiver coach who gave me the chance to get a scholarship there had me playing as a freshman. So he was grooming me for success on the gridiron. But at the same time, we had to be in in the classroom. We had to go to study hall. We had to make sure that we were getting our grades. And that was something that was, you know, embedded in me by my parents as 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 a young kid. Study hard, work hard, get your lesson, get your sports. You know, you can do both of those things just as well as, as, as anyone else. And so I, I took that motto to Richmond, majored in chemistry. And the reason I majored in chemistry because my mother gave me an agent appropriate, non-OSHA certified chemistry set when I was in probably fifth grade and I blew her living room up. So I was modeling already at a very early age what it meant to be a scientist. They were grooming me to be a scientist or an engineer or whatever I wanted to be. And, and when you see those you know, you could see my eyes, my brain was activated from that explosion. And you knew that I was ready to, to do something great in science because I've already done it as a, as a kid. And that's the example of when we create possibilities for people and, and see potential and possibility in them and not try to limit that path based on our own limited understanding. And another way that you pursue that, Leland, is that after graduation, you entered the NFL draft in 1986, and you were selected by the Detroit Lions. What did that mean for you? Because as you mentioned, you were really driven by science, but now you are at this opportunity to go professional in football. I never imagined myself going into the NFL. I mean, and my parents always talked about you can do anything. But I was a little kid, you know, I played on a wide receiver on a running team in in high school. So there was never this 
mindset to say that, hey, you're an NFL player, you're a blue chip or you're an NFL player. But when the opportunity came, I took it. 11th round draft choice. Uh, it was like around 12 o'clock at night. I was in my dorm. They called me and said, you want to play for the Detroit Lions? I'm saying, sure, why not? That's an opportunity. And I go to the camp and I, I do catch a few passes, some preseason games, but I I get injured in the night. They cut me on my on the on the final cut. But then the Dallas Cowboys pick me up the next season for another season. And in between the Detroit Lions and the Dallas Cowboys, I started graduate school at the University of Virginia. Why? Because someone said you could. You know, you can do both. You can do you did it in, in high in college, in high school. You can do it here in the NFL and go to graduate school too. And and I, I started a, a master's degree in material science engineering at University of Virginia while playing with the Cowboys, training with the Cowboys. And I injured my leg for the second time. So I went back to graduate school full time. And then, um, you know, that was the end of my football career. But it was it was an incredible moment to see some of these legends like Tony Dorsett and Chuck Long and, you know, these people that, that, that played professionally were first round draft choices. And I'm standing beside them on the football field. And this little kid from Lynchburg, you know, <laughs> it was amazing. I think about what it meant for you to be on a professional football team, to be in that world and pursuing a graduate degree. And then I think about the conversations that we have now about student athletes, particularly black student athletes, and how low the expectations often are that we have for these young people. What's the message that you would give to student athletes currently in college or those who are aspiring about what you were able to do, which is to say, as long as I have this opportunity, I'll make the most of it because I don't know where this will lead or how long it may last. What's the message to young people? Yeah, I, I, I remember when I got to, um, when I went between the, the, the Lions and the Cowboys, I went to the material science engineering uh, department chair and I, I walk in, you know, I'm interviewing to be a graduate student and the first thing that he says after I say hello to him in a few words is that, wow, you are so articulate. <laughs> I mean, and we, you know, we hear this as athletes. We hear this sometimes we're not supposed to be able to conjugate the verb to be. We're supposed to talk in, in monosyllabic sentences. And I, and I think that's a, an expectation that's levied on us. And it's been levied on us, not just as athletes, but just as a, a, a people. And so having those examples of people that can can do multiple things, that can generate different, you know, multiple revenue streams, when people have this mindset that you're only destined for one thing or, or maybe nothing. And so the message to the young men is that use, the, use our, our people from the past, the legacy of the past. Think about Harriet Tubman, who was a slave and liberated herself, was in freedom. And they told her, you can't, you can't go back. She said, watch me, watch me. And so taking these, these icons and these symbols, they were able to do things under duress, under a whip, under a chain, and they made it possible. So that's what I try to channel. I try to share with young men that people were doing even harder things with nothing, right? Pig feet is the delicacy now that everyone's eating, right? That was the scraps that we had to eat back in the day. So learn your history, have a dream, have a fire inside of you. You know, hopefully that dream and that desire is something that you love to do. And then find the people that have done it. 
you're not going to do it maybe the same way they do it, but glean from them and take the path that they have, have gone and take the, the kernels and the nuggets and the diamonds that you get from that and create your own path. That's the, that's the message. You can do, you, you have people that have done it before and you can see that people. And if you can't read, read, learn how to read. Don't be ashamed. If you can't speak, you know, the right way, learn. There, there's, there's, there's possibilities there for all of that because we've all done that. That's retired astronaut Leland Melvin. When we return, we continue our conversation. Melvin talks about how his time and space influences his life here on Earth. And later, how NASA's newest space telescope helps us look back in time and learn more about the creation of our planet. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. The FDA has recently approved ZepBound, a new medication for chronic weight management. Dr. Davida Umashankar, Hartford HealthCare's System Medical Director of Medical Weight Loss, tells us more. ZepBound helps decrease hunger and increase satiety levels. Taking this medication for 72 weeks, people can see at the highest dosage approximately 48 pounds of weight loss. So definitely a powerful drug and another powerful tool that we have to utilize to help individuals who struggle with obesity. For those ready to explore their medical weight loss options, Dr. Umashankar has advice on the first most important step. I don't think anyone knows you better than your own primary care physician. So having that conversation whenever you feel ready is so important because these medications are quite powerful and do need to be monitored on a regular basis. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're speaking with two scientists who have shaped the trajectory of NASA and space travel. Coming up, the director of NASA's James Webb Space Telescope shares how the mission's launch could help us unlock some of the universe's biggest questions. Before we get back to our interview, I want to take a moment to remember actress Nichelle Nichols. She played Lieutenant Uhura on Star Trek in the 1960s. In that role, she was a communications officer and technician on the USS Enterprise. Nichols was one of the first Black women to have a leading role in a major television series, and she later worked with NASA as a spokesperson to help recruit women and minority candidates to the space program. Hi, I'm Michelle Nichols, but I still feel a little bit like Lieutenant Uhura on the Starship Enterprise. You know, now there's a 20th century Enterprise an actual space vehicle built by NASA and designed to put us in the business of space, not merely space exploration. Now, NASA's Enterprise is a space shuttle built to make regularly scheduled runs into space and back, just like a commercial airline. That was a 1977 NASA recruitment video. Nichelle Nichols died Saturday, July 30th at the age of 89. Our guest today is retired astronaut Leland Melvin, and he posted a tribute on his Facebook page to the late Nichelle Nichols. Shortly after graduating with a master's in material science, Leland was recruited by NASA. In this 2021 conversation, 
I ask him how he responded to that offer letter and getting the opportunity to work with other influential women like famed mathematician and pioneer, Dr. Katherine Johnson. Just to see the NASA worm on the letter, you know, this is NASA. I mean, these people go to space. They went to the moon. And I knew nothing about Katherine Johnson. It was from White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, not far from where we lived in Lynchburg. And these icons, these people, uh, Robert Lee, who was a PhD physicist, it was doing you know, all these black faces and, and bodies that I got to meet through something called the National Technical Association when I went to work at NASA. Catherine was the secretary. She was doing the scribing and I became a member and it was this group of people that showed you what was possible at NASA and, and beyond. And so uh, I, had, I had some very good mentors. Katherine Johnson was a friend. She was, she was tough. We did math contests for kids. We did science contests. We did all these things to help that legacy, to keep, that, keep feeding that, that pipeline, to, to get even a better legacy for the future. So I was just inspired by just being there, working on some of those projects. So you weren't just there. You didn't just work on some projects. Not only were you working at NASA, you then become an astronaut. And I want to give context for our listeners. In 2020, over 12,000 people submitted an application and only about a dozen actually get an offer. What pushed you to apply to the program? And how did it feel when you got that acknowledgement of not only can you work at NASA, you can now go into space as an astronaut? Okay, it was, uh, it was a friend of mine. His name was Thomas Kashangaki. We worked together on some things and he said, Leland, they're, they're choosing material science, scientists. You're a material scientist. Here's an application for you to apply. And I looked at the application, I didn't fill it out. And that same year, Shay, another friend of mine, Charlie Camarda filled out the application and he got in. And I said to myself, if that knucklehead can get in, I can get in. I mean, he was a smart guy, but he was a knucklehead, you know? And so I applied the next selection, which was for the 1998 class. And I went through this whole interview process and I'll never forget John Young was, he was in my interview and he walked on the moon. He flew the first pilot to fly the space shuttle. And he said to me, he said, Leland, once we stop exploring, we will falter as a civilization. And just these big thinkers and these big legends. And I was amazed at this whole process of all these people coming in and then down selecting. We had 31 people that got into our astronaut class. And I got the phone call. And the first time the phone call dropped, second time it went to voicemail. The third time I talked to the guy, I said, Leland, do you want to become an astronaut? And I said, yes, sir. And it was just, it was, it was amazing. Amazing, Shay. And then to be around these people doing these incredible, like when you think about a team, NFL team, you know, the high level achievers, the best of the best of the best. And now you're, the win is mission success, going off the planet, building a space station with people that were in Top Gun, that people have multiple PhDs and it's surreal. But then my father always said, you can do or be anything and you're just as good as anyone else. And, you know, we have this thing called imposter syndrome when, when some of us get into this role of, you know, we're one of the one person in the group of color and everyone's looking at you like, well, what are you bringing to the table? We all have something unique to bring to the table, whether it's what they define as unique or not. We have it. We have to just 
bring it and, um, and, and, and make that part of the, the solution to the team. And so I was one African-American of 31 people. When you look at our class picture, you see this little brown piece in the back. And I always, when I give talks, I always say, say to people, hey, can you find Leland in the picture anywhere? Where's Leland? And I even have an arrow come over and point to me because I'm right there. But we all have something to contribute to the team. And I got two missions. I flew two times to the International Space Station. I installed the um, Columbus Laboratory with the Canada robotic arm, a $2 billion laboratory that we installed onto the space station. And I was so proud of that, but I think the next thing that was even more amazing was when the first female commander, Dr. Peggy Whitson, invited us over to the Russian segment to have a meal. We broke bread at 17,500 miles per hour. We're going around the planet every 90 minutes with African-American, Asian-American, French, German, Russian, the first female commander. It's like a Benetton commercial. And we're listening to Sade Smooth Operator. It was surreal. <laughs> Good music is universal. I'm listening to you talk about this experience of space and this idea that people could come together across all of the markers that traditionally divide us to create something for humanity that is much greater than those divisions. And at the same time, Leland, you talk about your experience here on Earth being stopped by a police officer and the fear that gripped you. Talk to our listeners about that experience and why it sticks with you when you think about the work of bringing people together that you've done your entire life in so many areas. Hey, I think the, the most important thing that I learned about mindset was from Carol Dweck. She wrote a book called Mindset that talks about a fixed versus a growth mindset. And many of the people that are that are proponents of isms on the planet have a very limited fixed mindset where they don't see the possibilities in other people. They have their biases and there's nothing wrong with being biased. We're all biased. It's just that do you allow your bias to keep someone else from rising? And if you know that you're biased, you can check yourself and not let it let it hurt someone else. But the mindset piece, I think, in space is that if I don't work together as a team, if I don't have a growth mindset, and if Leland flips the wrong switch, if Yuri flips the wrong switch, if Hans flips the wrong switch, we're all gone. So it's a matter of survival to work together as a, as a highly functioning team. Coming back down to the planet, we can have that same problem on the planet. We're seeing climate change. We're seeing all these things that are happening in Charlottesville and all over the country because people's mindsets are so fixed on, you know, this person or this color or this ideology or this party line. And it's keeping us, it's separating us and it's tearing us apart. And so I think doing the reflection and doing the um, internal work to say, what is my mindset? And who am I bringing into my tent? Am I bringing human beings into the tent? Because that's what we need to do, bring human beings into the tent so that our collective civilization flourishes. Over this last year, we've had lots of national and local conversations about race relations in the United States and about the need for all of us to engage in this introspection of figuring out how we open and expand our mindset and see people and their potential. And you said on a panel last year, quote, I've been on this rocket with millions of pounds of thrust 
and not once was I afraid of going to space. It's when I've been stopped by police officers that I didn't know. Some people will hear your story. They will hear all that you've accomplished in your life. And they will say, well, race and racism and prejudice couldn't have been a factor because look at all that he has achieved. And use you as an example or people like you to say, look, anything's possible. How do you use your experience, the reality of your experience and so many others to hold up that mirror that you talked about of why we need to have a more open mindset that just because you didn't experience this doesn't mean that it's not reality for others. Yeah, it's, uh, it's again, like I said, it's, it's, it's tearing us apart as a, as a civilization when, when this bias kicks in and it, and it makes people do things that they wouldn't do for someone else. I get stopped by a police officer here in Lynchburg and you know, I'm in the 10-2 position, I'm looking straight ahead. And when the officer walked up to me, and this was in the height of George Floyd and some of the other stops that were, were going on from, you know, around the country. And I said, sir, please don't shoot me. I have no guns, no drugs, no nothing, just please. And he was floored. He was like, why would I shoot you? I'm like, hey, do you watch the news? You know, and so he didn't give me a ticket. He was just, he was kind of flummoxed about, you know, me saying that. But at that moment, I just, I don't know, I had this anxiety that had been built from all of these occurrences of, of young black men, old black men, people getting, you know, shot. And it's not all officers, it's not all people, but, you know, this mindset, this bias that, you know, you must be up to no good because of the color of your skin or you're a black male or that, that happens. I mean, it's happened to me walking down the street. I've got a, a hoodie on, got a jacket on. It didn't matter, whatever. People cross the street. People are afraid sometimes. If I have my flight suit on, it's a different story. Oh, whoa, he's, that's the astronaut. Oh, okay, yeah, he's a good guy. He's all right. You know? It's an interesting uh, a dynamic as to who's going to fear you or who's going to want to be around you. And, it's, and, and it just depends on that 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 unconscious bias or that blink, you know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell talked about that book blink. I mean, you take a blink and you assess someone's entire life in that one snapshot. Do I fear them? Do I flee? Do I go towards them? And, you know, and I can understand that, but we can't let our biases keep us from being just like I say, one, one people. I'm listening to you talk about the different reaction to you and your flight suit versus you in a hoodie. And I'm remembering the conversations with my uncles and my great uncles about why they would wear their military uniform when they came home to Lynchburg, because they wanted people to give them the benefit of the doubt that, oh, you must be a good person because at least you served. And so it didn't shield them from discrimination, but it gave them another moment where they thought perhaps someone would see them and not see them as harm. It means something, Leland, for you to to say that and voice that, but you have raised your voices on a number of issues. And it's so important because I think it, it empowers people in a different way that's not intimidating. So whether you're talking about space exploration and promoting that for young people, I know you've been active in some campaigns to encourage Black communities and other communities to get vaccinated. Um, You know, my little nephew was on a billboard and the most exciting thing for him was that you tweeted about him. And for us, he, I was like, oh, do you know what this means? And he said, yes, 
It means Leland Melvin knows my name. He's three. (laughs) But for a three-year-old kid to feel like this person cares about people like me, why is it so important for you, Leland, after all you've been through and the, the still conservative nature of where we are, why is it important for you to raise your voice and lend your voice to these kinds of issues? Edmund Burke said, for evils to triumph over good, it's when the good people do nothing. There are a lot of good people out there that either are afraid to open their mouths or to stir the water or cause some waves. But, you know, we, we are in a life and death situation here. And if we don't, if we don't speak up truth to power and, and, and try to do it in a way that's non-confrontational, that's going to bring people together, we're going to be worse off as a, as a, again, I keep saying as a humanity, as a civilization, but you know, we're, we're going to, we're going to destroy ourselves. And so uh, it's, it's just so important to, to like, again, say, speak truth to power, to let all of our young men and women know that, you know, there, there are forces and things out there that can take them out, but there are also forces and things out there that can help them rise. And so that balance of understanding you know, going to the light versus going to the darkness and being so dejected and say, well, the system's against me. I can't do anything, but there's so much you can do to, to, to take that other, that other path. And, uh, and it's a balance, Shay. It's a, it's a delicate, delicate balance. As, as we come to a close here, I want to talk about the title of your memoir, which is Chasing Space an astronaut story of grit, grace, and second chances. And you opened that book talking about your training at NASA and losing your hearing and having an opportunity to rebound from that. You have gone through a number of setbacks that you've turned into successes and learning opportunities. Through all of that, Leland Melvin, what gives you hope to keep going? Oh my goodness, Shay. When I... When I look at pictures on Instagram or Twitter, wherever on social media, and I see little brown boys and girls for Halloween imitating my dog picture where I was in my orange pumpkin suit with my two dogs. And one little boy had a must, he drew a mustache on his like they're they want to be that. And so they believe, you know, they're they're following that journey, that that dream. They believe that they can do that because someone who looks like them can do it. So I think we have a I think we're gonna have a really bright future if we keep inspiring the next generation to believe three things, access, opportunity, and belief in yourself. We can give them all three, but that belief in yourself is critical because sometimes you don't need the access and the opportunity, just give them that belief and they will figure that other part out. And that's why I'm working with the Jubilee Family Development Center uh, with Sterling Wilder to start a new STEM academy and just help these young bloods rise because that's just going to change, change the not the world, but the universe. Leland Melvin is an engineer, former NFL wide receiver and retired NASA astronaut. He's author of the book Chasing Space, an astronaut story of grit, grace and second chances. Leland, thank you so much. Thank you, Shay. Godspeed on the journey. To learn more about Leland's journey in space and find links to his books, you can visit our website. It's ctpublic.org disrupted. 
Earlier this month, that conversation with Leland Melvin earned us a second place prize from the Public Media Journalism Association. I want to thank everyone who's been part of the team to make that episode happen and continuing to make Disrupted. After the break, NASA's Greg Robinson shares how the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope could be the agency's most important mission since landing on the moon. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. No need to ask, he's a smooth operator. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Six and a half months ago, a rocket launched from Earth, carrying the world's newest, most powerful deep space telescope. And today we're going to get a glimpse of the first light to shine through that window. Light from other worlds, orbiting stars far beyond our own. Light where stars were born and from where they die. Light from the oldest galaxies, the oldest documented light in the history of the universe from over 13 billion, let me say that again, 13 billion years ago. It's hard to even fathom. That's audio from President Joe Biden speaking at an event last month celebrating the first images from the James Webb Space Telescope. After nearly three decades of planning, the scientific community is hoping that that telescope can provide new insights into our universe and the origins of life itself. The telescope is upwards of 100 times more powerful than the Hubble telescope. Greg Robinson is director for the James Webb Space Telescope Program. He spoke with us last year as NASA was preparing to launch the telescope. Greg, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Okay, many Americans are aware of NASA's most prominent programs. So many people know about the Apollo mission and the Challenger mission, but they may not be as familiar with all of the work that NASA does beyond sending humans to space. And so now we know that the James Webb Space Telescope is being heralded as this major revolutionary step forward in research. Talk to our listeners about this telescope and why it's so important that this breakthrough is happening now. Uh, human spaceflight has been the face of NASA for many years, rightfully so, from Apollo through the space shuttle program. And of course, at NASA, we do a lot of other stuff, aeronautics. Every time you fly, NASA is touching you. On the science side, I would say equally as big as human spaceflight as far as portfolio. And as far as uh, missions in particular, we know Hubble has a, a great 30 plus year legacy. It's brought us a lot of new uh, understanding of our universe. And Webb is, is 100 times more powerful. So if you could just imagine that twice as large, 2.4 size meter mirror on Hubble and six and a half meters on, on Webb. So much, much, much uh, more powerful and often referred to as this is science's Apollo moment. It's truly a historic uh, telescope. So it's the Apollo moment. It's more powerful. It's larger than Hubble. And, you know, we somewhat think we know what Hubble is about and what it's done. What is it exactly that Webb will be able to accomplish that perhaps Hubble could not or that Hubble got us to a point that now Webb can take us even further? So uh, first, as I mentioned, uh, the size 
it's actually much lighter than Hubble, uh, which um, is a tribute to the team for all of the engineering, ingenuity, uh, new technology, lightweight materials, et cetera. So that's a really big deal. Uh, Hubble has allowed us to look back in time, formation of the universe, a few billion years. Uh, Webb will, will allow us to look even further back using infrared, just beyond that 13 and a half billion years, if you could imagine. And, and we believe that the universe was created about 14 billion years ago, just under that. And we're trying to look in that two, three, 400 million years after the Big Bang. Uh, we've never been able to see that, uh, those new galaxies forming in that time frame. So we refer to that as the, I would say the preteen era, or some people even say the preschool era. Uh, we kind of know the Big Bang. We don't know all the details, of course. And we know back, again, over 13 billion years, but we don't know that middle piece in the early infancy after, um, after the Big Bang. So uh, Webb will allow us to, to peer into that, to better understand it. Of course, it, it does other things too. When Webb was started, this thing we call exoplanets today uh, was barely being talked about and even thought of. And of course, we've learned a lot from other missions about exoplanets. We've identified a few thousand, many, many thousands, if not millions to go. And Webb will allow us to better characterize uh, those exoplanets more up close and personal. And lastly, we don't talk about much. It allows us to see our own, within our own solar system, things like uh, on Mars uh, to see the storms and get a better understanding of the environment and atmosphere of, of our own planets within the solar system. And there's a lot of other stuff in between. Understanding that past and being able to see how what's happening in the universe can shape our understanding. I also understand that this is a project that takes a very long time to bring from concept and idea to actual implementation. And so this program was proposed all the way back in 1997. What happens in that interim period? Why does it take so long to bring a project like this into reality and implementation? So, you know, we, we often ask for major historic events. Where were you when, right? So think about it. Where were you when Web was conceived and started? But uh, I want to hear people say, where were you when December 22nd, 2021, Web was launched? These, what we call flagship missions, uh, they're pretty expensive. They take a lot of time for many reasons. One is we're using a lot of new technology. We're doing bold science that's never been done before at a certain level. So you need challenging new techniques and new technologies. Those just take time, just the natural physics of time to mature these things. And then these systems are extremely complex. So the engineering is quite complex. That takes some time to get the requirements settled, to get the design done, and of course, to start building. Over many years, just like humans ourselves, we make a mistake here, a mistake there. On many missions, a, a small mistake can be a, a few days, a few weeks to correct and keep moving. And these flagship missions, it could be many months, unfortunately. So many months, a few times adding to years. Plus all of the other complexities I mentioned of uh, small anomalies, once you're building and testing and small failures, and, and even those can take a while. So it's, it's based on the boldness of what we're trying to do. 
Now, should it take as long as Webb has taken? I would say not, uh, but we, we certainly experience many of the different types of things I just talked about. I feel like that's a life lesson, that boldness takes time and that things happen in that process. And I want to ask you, Greg, what is it that you're most looking forward to or most excited that you hope that once web launches and all of these discoveries start to occur, what is it that you're most looking forward to? Well, the first thing I'm looking forward to after we get through launch and commissioning, uh, that, that first that first major image, it's gonna one tell us how how good the telescope really is, and of course that only tell us a little bit. There have been many others over the years, so I'm looking for that first image, so I can just sit back and say, "Wow, look at that!" And that's just the start. Also, I, I want to learn a lot more about as we look back in the early time of universe being formed. Uh, we all want to be little more knowledgeable than we were before. Just think of our four parents and two and three generations ago, what they knew about physics. And certainly when you go back a few hundred years. So we've learned so much over the years uh, based on different types of experiments, not just space. So I want my grandsons to look up to the sky and say, Pa contributed to this. And geez, we're learning all of this great stuff that Pa didn't know when he was in school. So that's what I want to get out of this. That, that would be my defining moment. Building a legacy for those grandchildren, but also building a legacy for young people and those yet to come. And in the show, we've also talked to Leland Melvin, who, you know, you both are native to Virginia, as am I. And we talked about what it meant for him as a young African-American boy growing up in this Southern town of having this experience at NASA that he never could have dreamed of as a young person, but prepared himself for opportunities as they come. What does it mean for you to have grown up in Danville, Virginia, to now be a part of this project at NASA and to, as you said, create something that your grandchildren can look up to the sky and understand your legacy? What does that mean for you? It means a lot. When I look back at that little boy growing up in Danville, I could not see Greg Robinson today, right? Because there just weren't many things around to help Greg see Greg today. Uh, fortunately for me, I, I was I started school in segregated schools, and the teachers were really, really um, supportive in so many ways. From a disciplinarian, excellent, excellent teachers taught the fundamentals. The old saying, everything you need to know, you learned in kindergarten. I certainly learned it in grades kindergarten through four in segregated schools. So it, it kind of set the pace for me, knowing that I was really prepared for the world. But as you know, that mind is a terrible thing to waste over time. If you don't have a support system, you still can lose it. So I had a lot of support around me. And in many cases, people who were not formally educated, uh, but they saw something to me and they pushed me along boy, get back over there and don't get in trouble. We really like what you're doing in school. We heard some good things about you. All of these types of things, my high school football coach, waiting at the door on the way you know, to go catch the bus, making sure everyone had their books, taking them home. He didn't know if we opened them or not, uh, but certainly that push, that education was important. All of those things contributed to where I am. So hopefully 
many kids across the globe can see me as starting way back there on the dirt roads outside of Danville to where I am today. And they say, regardless of where I am, I can be that as well. I certainly couldn't see that when I was a, a youngster. You've been able to create more opportunities for others as well in the field. What do you think NASA could do to open up this exploration and, and this process for other people, particularly young people who may not see themselves in that world, but NASA has the opportunity to help us understand the universe and our connection to it every day? So I think a couple of things. One is uh, certainly the missions themselves speak for themselves. They're very, uh, they excite people, motivate people. Of course, after Apollo landing, engineering school enrollment went through the roof. A lot more young scientists were starting out back then. And some of those folks looked like me. Now that was late 60s, early 70s, when there was a push to get more people of color into STEM, into schools, period. So today, in, in the case of NASA, the missions help. We're also looking on the science side, at least, how we can actually expand more science into uh, communities that have, have not been reached in large numbers. Uh, one of those areas is we, we're starting to do a lot more with HBCUs. We've always done a little bit. Uh, so that's increasing. We're expanding our diversity and inclusion. Once expanding, we're actually creating many. So we can, we can accomplish exactly what you just asked. Science touches every aspect of our lives and the ways that in touching our lives, science also connects us to these wonders of exploration. Greg Robinson is director of the James Webb Space Telescope Program at the NASA Science Mission Directorate. Greg, thank you so much and best of luck with the launch. Uh, thank you so much and make sure you continue to follow us through launch and images and for many years. Thank you. That conversation was recorded in 2021, prior to the now successful launch of the James Webb Space Telescope. To find out more and see the first images from that telescope, you can visit our website. It's ctpublic.org slash disrupted. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf, J. Carlisle Larson, Kevin Chang Barnum, and Katie Tularski. Our interns are Anya Grandalski and Myra Raju. I'm Kalila Brown Dean. We'll be back next week. <laughs>